Hello and welcome to The Reader Podcast. My name is Francis and I work for The Reader. This is the second episode in which we're going to visit The Reader's project to uncover the heritage of Calderstones, our home and headquarters. When The Reader became the custodians of a Georgian mansion house and its grounds in South Liverpool, we took on the responsibility for sharing as much about the mansion's past as we can find out, and for helping to tell its story now and in the future. Because we want the mansion to become a reading home that anyone can enter and feel welcome in, the responsibility is very real to us, even when the story to be told is not straightforward or easy. The mansion house's age and location has led some to wonder if it's in any way linked to the transatlantic slave economy, which is, after all, an inextricable part of the history of Liverpool. Between 1695 and 1807, over 5,000 voyagers left the port of Liverpool to participate in the trade in enslaved African people, funded by the city's merchants and shipowners. The profits they made were used to build many of the city's historic mansions and public buildings. So, last year, with support from the National Lottery Heritage Fund, a team of volunteers, under the guidance of local historian Lawrence Westgaff, set out to try and help the reader find answers. If you've listened to our previous podcast episode about the history of Calderstones, you might remember that the Mansion House was built in 1828 by Joseph Need Walker, a Liverpool manufacturer. Joseph was born in 1790 and would have been about 17 years old in 1807 when the transportation of enslaved people across the Atlantic was made illegal. Joseph inherited his wealth from the family business which was started by his grandfather near Rotherham in Yorkshire, which was manufacturing iron goods. The business diversified from there and by the time Joseph Need Walker was born, the firm both manufactured and exported lead shot, which is a type of ammunition. After significant research by the team of volunteers and Lawrence Westgaff, no evidence was found directly linking Joseph Need Walker to the transatlantic slave economy. However, the nature of this family business and their status as a major company producing metal goods during this period would indicate that the products that the Walkers manufactured would have found their way into that slave economy prior to the abolition of the trade in enslaved African people in 1807. The results of this research are contradictory and far from conclusive, and we know we're only at the start of a process. There's far more detail available on what was found so far on the reader's website. You'll find a link to the relevant pages in the description of this episode. Within this episode, though, we're going to hear from two people who have been involved in the project and who will help us find our way forward. Robert Hughes, a heritage volunteer at Calderstones, who was part of the team undertaking the research, and Liverpool-based artist Samaya Carder, who the reader commissioned to create an artwork responding to the research, as incomplete as it is. 
Samaya's resulting piece, a painting entitled Now We Sit With It, will be on permanent display in the Mansion House from the end of February 2024. Here first is Robert, who spoke with me online at the end of last year about his experience of this project. A great part of working at the reader is that you kind of are surrounded by history all the time, um, literally in the heritage room. It's, it's all I do is I talk about history and I kind of introduce people to aspects of the park and the stones. And uh, it, it's, yeah, it's fabulously interesting. So as soon as we got that email about um, the um, this project, about the slavery and things, um, yeah, I just kind of jumped on board and thought, oh, this is going to be really interesting to find out. It's good to kind of be able to research these things and really kind of tell the facts from the fiction and really, I think the main crux of it was finding out if there were direct links to Joseph Mead Walker to, you know, the um, the mansion house itself. Exactly. Since it's the headquarters, it's, it's such an important thing to kind of know, to contextualise. Yes, so um, as I say, Lawrence, our, our local historian, um, he, he would kind of sit us down and he'd give us these resources that we'd use to research um, aspects of, of the, the need walkers that kind of, uh, and then directions to kind of go. So we'd kind of go through all the family trees, we'd kind of see, it got to the point because the information was so scarce that we'd have to uh, go through his relatives' family trees, so like his uncles, his kind of nephews, that kind of thing, to find anything concrete. We even had somebody head over to um, to Yorkshire to kind of look at the archives over there, that's where his family originally hailed from. And it's still so inconclusive. It's so difficult to find anything about it. So in- Internet Archive was, was, was a handy one. Um, that is also a public access thing, so anyone can kind of use that to find information from the past, uh, historical articles and that kind of thing. Um, uh, basically, yeah, we also had, um, there was... There was a museum, I believe, that had um, information you could access online as well. Um, so a lot of it was public access. A few people had access to other resources themselves because of their various positions. They were in National Trust, um, uh, university, that kind of thing. But yeah, usually it was it was public access things, which, again, it kind of opens your eyes up to how much information is available to you if you just look for it, um, which, is, which is really good if you're kind of researching things on the side. Um, as a hobby, um, yeah, it's, it's really easy to find some resources online. Just, just, just not about Joseph Big Walker. There's just not as much about him. Did you find that you and the, and your fellow researchers was that kind of frustrating? You know, um, not finding information very readily. Yeah, I would. I would say so. It's it's like having a question that you can't find the answer to. It's it's just um, little little nudges, little kind of things that could be something but never ending up being anything cohesive um there was even um one of our other people found something about um joseph at a um fancy dress party or something dressed up as a scottish person um uh, and it's like it's just little things like that that we'd find little breadcrumbs but never the loaf um which is just uh it it, it is bothersome so you were you were still kind of searching but there came a point when you kind of had to stop and and Lawrence Westgaff wrote his kind of report on what you'd found so far. Um, And and at that point, there was a call out for artists to get involved and respond. You know, we wanted to commission a particular artist to respond to the research such as it was. I I think uh, if you kind of create something um, to that level, that is just really interesting. You have to kind of stop and look at it. It's even better because more people will kind of 
just just take that time to just have a little look and discover things they didn't know before. I hope that whenever they kind of have this this art piece ready, that um, it has it has the, the kind of intended effect. It just it makes people stop. It makes them kind of look into it, and um, just helps people understand um, a little bit more and kind of just just let them learn something new. Um, that, that's all it kind of really needs to do. Just make you think. I know that you had shared reading sessions and you read literature aiming to kind of deepen the experience of kind of what you were researching or deepen your understanding of it. Is that right? Uh, yeah, we had um, we had some things that maybe not exactly um, on topic, but they had some some kind of readings that we d- we did that that were um, I guess, guess relevant to kind of slavery um, notions about uh, freedom and that kind of thing. Um, there was there was a poem about. Not a volcano, but it was... Um, it's that Wallace Stevens postcard of the volcano. Is that it? That one, yeah. That, that one was a really good one. What's good about it is if you have something that's very um, interpretive, you can, kind of, you can apply it to so many different things. So I think that was, uh, that was one of those where you, you could kind of look at it and be like, oh, this, this could be about slavery. This could be about anything, really. It, 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 has, it has kind of all those kind of notions that we have when it comes to historical research, um, especially about slavery. It talks about the children. Um, it, it mentions about how um, they, they will kind of, uh, it says right here, um, a part of what it is, children, still weaving budded aureoles, will speak our speech and never know. And that is such such a kind of insight there. Is, is I mean, how often do people repeat these things that other people have said but never really understand the meaning behind it? They don't kind of have that introspective look. Um, and it is important to let the children know, you know, kind of why we have these things. Uh, a lot of the parks in the city were so lucky to have. Um, all these estates came from wealthy merchants who, um, you know, a lot of them have benefited from, from slavery. Um, it should never kind of impair your enjoyment of it today. But it's important to contextualize that, just to let people know why we have these things and why we don't make those same mistakes again. Postcard from the Volcano by Wallace Stevens Children picking up our bones will never know that these were once as quick as foxes on the hill, and that in autumn, when the grapes made sharp air sharper by their smell, these had a being, breathing frost. And least we'll guess that with our bones we left much more, left what still is, the look of things, left what we felt, at what we saw. The spring clouds blow above the shuttered mansion house, beyond our gate, and the windy sky cries out illiterate despair. We knew for long the mansion's look, and what we said of it became a part of what it is. Children, still weaving budded aureoles, will speak our speech, and never know. We'll say of the mansion that it seems as if he that lived there left behind a spirit Storming in blank walls, a dirty house in a gutted world, a tatter of shadows peaked to white, smeared with the gold of the opulent sun. 
do you think reading the literature alongside the process of researching, do you think that was helpful? I, I think it adds, um, the main thing is it adds that kind of emotional impact, which you don't really have when it comes to looking up historical information. It's very, um, not arbitrary, but kind of very objective, as history should be. It's objective. It's something that you look at, but it's not always very personal. It's, it's, it's factual information. Whereas um, when you're looking at poetry or stories, usually one person has worked on that. One person has done that with an intention, with an emotional kind of inference into it. And that's the aspect that needs to be remembered as well, um, is that you don't lose touch of the human part of it, of the, of the people you know, who have suffered, the people who have also tried to stop it, that kind of thing. Um, knowing what people want to get out of it is, 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 is really important too. You shouldn't lose that kind of side of it. Because then it builds little groups together. It kind of uh, cheers people up. It shows in community. Um, and even even if it's a difficult piece, I myself sometimes have trouble with poetry because poetry is so interpretive. And it's nice to hear somebody else say, oh, this made me feel this. Like, oh, you know, it does. It does make me think that. And you get a little different perspective that you wouldn't have had before. Is there anything you'd particularly want people to understand when they come to the Mansion House and, and we talk about this kind of project kind of trying to investigate the links into slavery is there anything I, I guess what's the sort of story that you you'd hope that we would tell about that I think um oh as well as it was obviously the moral kind of historical implications there what else would actually be useful is if somebody kind of looks at this and they might have more information that we don't have already um that, I mean that'd be fabulous if somebody kind of looked at it and thought Hang on a minute, you know, I I know a little bit of something about this, and um, we can we can add that to it. We can amalgamate it and kind of get a better understanding of of, of the house of Joseph Meek Walker, of kind of the way the things were and the way the things should be going forwards. So hoping it will stay a live thing that it doesn't, you know, yeah, investigation yeah. doesn't stop. And yeah, because history and this kind of thing, it's it's a uh, it's it's. It's a never-ending kind of journey. It's, it's something that you um, will never, ever know too much about everything that's happened. Um, and that's the best thing about it. It's, it's such a kind of alive concept. It, it'll always... We'll never, ever know too much, basically. And, and it'd be lovely if we can find, find out new things that we didn't know before. As I mentioned during that chat with Robert, once a report had been produced at the end of 22 on the research up to that point, the reader put out a call to find an artist who was prepared to respond to that research and create an artwork for permanent display in the mansion house. Samaya Carder has created that artwork for us after a considered process of getting to know the reader, the mansion house and engaging with the heritage volunteers. She spoke to Flynn Murray from The Reader about this process and her piece. Hello, Samoya. My name is Flynn Murray. I work for The Reader organisation and I'm joined today by the artist Samoya Carter here at the Mansion House in Calderstones Park, home to The Reader and soon to be home to your new work for permanent display here. Thanks for taking the time 
uh, of your busy schedule to see us here today. So first, it'd be great to get a sense of your practice as an artist prior to this project. Yeah, so I am a illustrator, a painter, born in Liverpool, studied in Liverpool, so studied fine art at Hope, and yeah, have always been interested in creating as a form of expression, mainly because I find it like the easiest medium for me to get my thoughts and opinions and ideas across and to convey them. Um, Taking a while to figure that out, I'm not going to lie. Graduated like eight years ago, maybe, maybe longer, I can't remember. But since then, have done odd bits and bobs, but it wasn't until lockdown that I actually started to get really into illustration. Um, I like sharing work consistently online and through doing that, kind of started to get approached about commissions and book covers and to make posters for various institutions and things. And through doing that, it's allowed me to carve out small pockets of time to get back into painting Mm -hmm. because it was something that obviously painting, it takes time. You have to wait for things to dry. There's lots of, you know, stepping back, reflecting on things, coming back to it a few days later. Um, So yeah, so I think during lockdown, getting back into illustration kind of gave me the confidence to start painting again, Mm. to be honest. Um, And I do both. So there's not one that I do more than the other. I guess painting is more for me at times, except for when it's a lovely commission like this and Mm -hmm. it's working with other people and being a bit more collaborative. Um, And illustration often is a specific topic. People can buy prints or someone will just commission something as a one-off. So yeah spinning plates that's great and so was this the the first research-based project you've worked on in being asked to interpret someone else's research rather than sort of your own processes as as a painter and artist and illustrator yeah for a painting yes definitely i've worked previously with writing on the wall um to like interpret an archive but that actually ended up just being a portrait instead of specific things so this is the first time it has been you know a body of research that you have to go away and dissect a little bit and try to understand to some point um and then pull together your own ideas but stay true to that research itself Mm -hmm. in a way um so yes it's been a a very different process to how i'd usually work and was there was there something in the obviously the research itself deals with the history of the Walker family and its links to transatlantic slavery. Was there something in your kind of themes that you dealt with? Uh, I know you've mentioned in the past dealing with identity and things like that that drew you to this project. I guess, I mean, the main thing for me was working with the reader. I guess it's not something that I'd done before. It's not an organisation I knew a lot about, if I'm mm. totally honest, but I was curious because I knew it existed. I knew that a new space had just opened in the city centre. I have been, I used to go to Calderstone School. So like the familiarity with the area. Know a few people who had previously worked here in small capacities Mm -hmm. and then was approached about, oh, have you seen this? Would you be interested Mm -hmm. in putting in an expression of interest for it? And I was like, it's always a tricky one when you're looking at slavery 
and it's not a topic that I am drawn to explore further from an artistic narrative, to be totally honest, I guess. It's something that I, as a black person, experience quite a lot. Those histories are quite visible to me. We're in Liverpool. Like, mm-hmm. I walk to work every day and you see, you know, the assets of slavery are all around you. So it wasn't exciting in terms of exploring slavery I guess for me it was more exciting about working with a great institution in the city and having a piece of work on display in that space that could one reach a new audience but two be something that I could be proud of in Liverpool Mm -hmm. that was on display. Mm -hmm. So what was the what was the process you you put your submission forward and and uh, it was accepted by the reader based on your previous work and your interest. So what was what was the approach after that point um, when you came to start working on it? Yes, after that point, it was really important for me to know more about the reader and how things work. So there's two aspects to it. One is the research itself and the group of people who undertook that research and what that contradiction, unresolved kind of aspect of it is. And then the other side is the building and the people who visit it and inhabit it on a daily basis, on a monthly basis, people who are here all the time, people who will drop by once. What does that journey look like for them? Mm. Who are they encountering on their way? What else is the building pointing towards and talking about? Where will the work sit within that context? So for me, it was about meeting people um, and having conversations both with people who did the research, the volunteers who work here, the staff members who work here, um, and doing a walkthrough to be like, okay, what would work, what wouldn't work? And that is all in conversation. Um, so it was not coming to it with a preset idea. It was more mm. being open, I think. And I think we were open from both sides about what would work and what wouldn't work because it's kind of... It felt like you guys trusting me to have that artistic vision and me trusting you to be like, no, bring it out into this space. I think this will be a nice environment for that to sit. And between us, I think that was the real starting point of the the art itself beginning. Yeah, well, thanks for saying that because there is this sense as a commissioning body when you're dealing with an artist and asking them to make a piece of work based on a piece of research. There's always that sense that you might be, in a way sort of saying, here's our research, now use your voice to sort of illustrate it. Um, it's a kind of way of sort of uh, vision, putting words in your in your mouth. So mm-hmm. for us, that process of you coming to the research and being kind of like, this is how I'm going to respond to it because this is, this is my feelings on the research and not just a sort of illustration of uh, the walk of family history or, or, or any of that context was really... Uh, refreshing and it makes it more your voice, your kind of response, uh, which was which was great for us to see. Um, you took part in some shared reading as part of your induction into the reader. Is that right? Yes, I did. Um, I participated. How did that experience go? Yeah, so I did one shared reading session. It was really interesting. Um, I'd never done one before. I guess I came into it with like a pre-idea of what it would be and how it would feel. Um, and it is, it's quite intimidating initially, mm-hmm. um, especially because you're around the table with people who 
don't necessarily look like you, don't read the same literature as you. Um, by the end of it, I was really on board with the concept because I think there was a really nice way of us talking about the piece of literature itself, but then letting people just react to that naturally. Mm-hmm. And then stories, and then that's where the trust kind of get, gets woven in, mm-hmm. is through that and giving each person their own time to reflect and say nothing, if that's how they would like to you know, experience that session, or to share something. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really into it. I find it a really lovely experience, to be honest. Um, after first stepping in and being a bit like, oh, what's this going to be like? Am I going to have to say something to feel like, oh, okay, no, it's fine not to say something. It's fine to just be really receptive to everyone else in the space. So um, were there any more kind of challenging parts of this process in in, in terms of doing the research or, or were there any kind of lessons that you felt that you'd learned from, from going through this process of, engaging with an external organization and how that affected your kind of creative output in in terms of its difference to what you do normally? I guess, I mean, one thing is that you immediately feel accountable. Like I Mm. felt very accountable to you all about producing something that talked about the research. And I guess the one thing that it was great to meet the volunteers and a person who was involved in that research study. Um, And through that, it kind of gave me a bit more confidence to push back a bit Mm -hmm. and be like, okay, I'm happy to interpret the research, but also this is the spin I'd like to put on it Mm -hmm. for two reasons. One, because the research was quite inconclusive and it's really hard to talk about a family's involvement in transatlantic slavery when it's kind of like, well, they have profited, but also not in the way that some people have profited. And also some people were abolitionists, but also some people definitely were pro. And so that for me is just murky waters. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a a black artist, it's really traumatic, as I said before, Mm -hmm. to kind of talk about these topics. So for me, something that came across in that group was like people were just talking about depicting slavery. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's enough of that in the world. There's a lot of the Walker family history in this building and that is great and that should exist, but there's no black presence. So mm-hmm. I guess for me, then it became really important to be like, how can we put a black presence into this that isn't depicting them in a derogatory way? How do we honor that legacy and those untold stories and names and histories that we can't uncover because mm. papers have been lost or, you know, the books were never written? All of those things, that's kind of then what it became to me. And that was challenging because you have to work through that. You have to work through looking back at slavery and the links to this building, the links to the family, the links to the city to then get yourself out of that. And to say, okay, do you know what? I'm not going to depict it. I'm going to go black presence and that will be the focus. And it will still be rooted in the research, but it might not be the thing that everybody expects. I guess that's a good point to ask if you'd mind uh, describing for us the piece that uh, that we'll be, we'll be living with. So the piece is called um, Now We Sit With It. And I guess 
to describe it simply, it is a moment of reflection. So it depicts a black figure kind of with their back to the viewer, um, staring toward a bookcase, which has no titles of books. It's kind of open to interpretation. It's quite a simple um, composition, but I guess it's the idea of a strong black figure just sitting in a moment of contemplation. And for some people, I guess a lot of times, portraiture is of the era of transatlantic slavery. And the idea of the figure not facing the viewer is the fact that we don't have those names and histories of, of our black ancestors to be able to depict them in the way that we can of, mm. you know, the white slave owners. Um, so it is, it's simple. Hopefully it's it's quite effective. For me, I would like it for some people to be a moment of confusion, for others a moment of joy, for some, you know, moment of intrigue. That's the idea behind it, is like people can interpret it themselves. I'm sure, I'm sure somebody will come up with a much better description of it than I can, <laughs> to be honest. Oh, thanks for that. It'd be great to know a little bit about your personal relationship to reading and you know, is it something you do for pleasure in your I was going to say spare time but I'm realizing now that, <laughs> that you what don't is know. spare time <laughs> yeah. but is it maybe maybe in the in, in the deep past you uh, you enjoyed reading once and tell us a little bit about your, your reading life in that sense yeah so I I guess my relationship with reading has changed mainly because yeah carving out time for it it used to be very seasonal, mm. um, to be honest with you. So in winter, that was when the new stack of books would come in. I guess for me, like my journey with reading was as someone younger, like the world of fantasy was the one. Um, so that was where you'd escape, you'd mm. find these stories and escape from real life. And then I hit like mid to late teens and you start looking at the bookshelves at home and then that's when you get, you actually discover what reading is and what writing is mm -hmm. to some degree. So for me, it was discovering people like James Baldwin and Maya Angelou. Um, and a lot of that, I guess it's a tricky one because a lot of that then delves into the black experience. And then mm -hmm. my reading took a shift from this like level of escapism to like actually looking at the past, 50 60 years and thinking about how you fit in the world and how you talk about the world and how our perspective change depending on what country you're in and mm -hmm. what nationality you are and all of those things um so it's evolved in that way now i guess i still read i try to um not as much as i'd like um but i do think for me, I think it's one of the nicest things when you can walk into somebody's space and see books mm. because it tells you a little bit about about them. So like in our house, for example, they're very like categorized in terms of, you know, just general fiction, poetry, books I've stolen from my mum. One day I'll give you them back. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of the black literature, which takes up the majority of our shelves at home and like 10 years ago that probably wouldn't have been the case but I guess it's your interest change and you want to have conversations about these topics more mm -hmm. so in order to do that you read more 
and like I've taken a lot of books from my family home a lot of like poetry to be honest with you um and that was just the interests of my family at the time and what Mm. they loved to read and talk about um so you kind of want to take those things away and it's I find it really beautiful as well when you open a book a lot of it is like it'll be like to my mom happy like 26th birthday and someone's given her that like little anthology I really should give it back to her (laughs) (laughs) but it's really nice to see because I think that some of the nicest gifts you can give someone when you really think about it is being like I've read this Mm. I think you would love it or you're at that point in your life where I think this would really resonate with you and so that's the power of it sometimes. History, as nearly no one seems to know, is not merely something to be read. And it does not refer mainly, or even principally, to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in so many ways. And history is literally present in all that we do. It could scarcely be otherwise, since it is to history that we owe our frames of reference, our identities and our aspirations. And it is with great pain and terror that one begins to realise this. In great pain and terror, one begins to assess the history which has placed one where one is, and formed one's point of view. In great pain and terror, because thereafter one enters into battle with that historical creation, oneself, and attempts to recreate oneself according to a principle more humane and more liberating. One begins the attempt to achieve a level of personal maturity and freedom which robs history of its tyrannical power and also changes history. That was a quote from a 1965 essay called The White Man's Guilt by the American writer James Baldwin. He lays out there the scope of what's involved in an endeavour to come to terms with our history. It involves realisation, honest assessment, sitting with it, and a battle to recreate, to reform. As Robert and Samoya point out, there's still much examination to do of the history of our reading home. It must still be a live thing, And there's many questions that still require an answer. What we do know is that we'll continue to use literature on this process in order to, as Robert says, keep it personal, to stay in touch with the human part. 
in order to find that principle more humane and more liberating, which will be our guide. That's all for this episode. If you want to know more about Calderstones and about the Heritage Project, you can visit our website www.thereader.org.uk. That's also the place to go if you want to find out more or get involved in any aspect of the reader's work. There were many people involved in putting together this episode. You can read the rest of James Baldwin's essay, The White Man's Guilt, in the collection Dark Days, which is published by Penguin. First thanks go to Samoya Kada for every part of her huge contribution to this project, and to Flynn Murray. Many thanks to Robert Hughes and the other heritage volunteers at Calderstones, who went above and beyond on a research task that which was challenging in numerous ways. The recording, editing and production in this episode is by Chris Lynn, and he, along with Frank Johnson, created the music for the Reader podcast. This episode was made possible by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, who have funded the two-year Making Meaning project at Calderstones. Thanks to you too for listening right to the end. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the Reader podcast and subscribe to get future episodes as soon as they're released. And until next time, goodbye.